Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to another podcast in the mobility space that I think you'll enjoy, the Rideshare Guy podcast by Harry Campbell. Harry has become a trusted expert on all things rideshare, and he may be the only person ever to have driven for Uber and also interviewed Uber's CEO on a podcast. On the Rideshare Guy podcast, Harry interviews a wide range of industry and thought leaders in the rideshare and mobility space. You can find and subscribe to the Rideshare Guy podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to season four of the podcast. This is your host, Michelle Kairus. Today we're talking with transportation entrepreneur Robin Chase. She's co-founder and former CEO of Zipcar, the largest car sharing company in the world. She's been involved in numerous other projects, including the Numo Alliance and the Shared Mobility Principles for Livable Cities. Robin, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Great. Well, we've seen all these new technologies in transportation from you know car sharing with Zipcar, ride services like Uber and Lyft, autonomous vehicles, micromobility, all these apps around planning and paying for trips. Um, when you look at all these technologies and where we are today, how do you see these modes fitting together in cities and, and where are we heading with it? I have to say it's such a delightful and incredible thing that you can give that list of all these options yeah. We're in such a, such a particular moment. Um, why I'm delighted is that for almost a century, we've had this, we've built cities to be, I want to say, monomodal. We've built cities for cars, and we've adjusted all of our cities for that purpose and between cities for that purpose. And while it might have made great sense and was a kind of delightful-looking future when we started it 120 years ago, and we now realize that it's really not serving us well. It doesn't work in our really dense metropolitan areas. We can't have one person with one car or one household with one car. We can't store it. We can't fit them on the streets. And if we think of it from a climate perspective, we know that um, transportation is now the largest contributor to CO2 emissions um, around the world. And, and from a health perspective, what's going on in cities as we become inactive and are breathing um, often polluted air. So as I, as I listen to that list, I think, wow, how fantastic at this exact moment that we really, really, really need to get a handle on these things. Technology is offering up a way to make, I want to say, shared and active transport and multimodal options the easy and convenient thing that we really can replace what felt simple and straightforward to people who are rich enough to own cars. Um, we can now substitute that, substitute this diversity of offerings. And and if I look towards the future of dense urban areas, um, I know profoundly that they're moving every day closer and closer to this multimodal way of getting around. And I sometimes feel like people people want to say, or might feel anxiety like, oh, that's going to be so complicated or that feels complicated. How can I go from walking to 
e-scooting to electric bike to regular bike to transit to bus to shared car to ride. Like, how am I going to manage that gigantic suite of options? It was so easy when I just walked out my door and stepped into my own car and done. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it's really, it's just kind of, I want to compare it to how we eat. If we wake up in the morning and maybe I cook breakfast, maybe I go out and get it. Maybe I get, you know, maybe I get takeout that I bring home. Maybe I'm eating something that I make from scratch, you know, that we have this huge diversity of ways in which we consume food without thinking twice about it. And it's not a, it's not some hard thing. So too, we can, we will be in this new way of being that will feel very natural and easy now that we do have smartphones and um, we have smartphones that help us discover options, pay for those options, call those options. And it's kind of a much more seamless thing than it used to be. Yeah, it's interesting how the technology has finally sort of brought us to a place where we can have these options. You know, I think for so long, urban planners and transportation policy folks were just dying to get people out of their cars and and thinking about other modes. Um, but it's really been the technology that's given this to us at this moment. So I wanted to just talk about some of the different modes and get your thoughts on how you think these pieces come together. You know, one mode that's been very controversial in cities is Uber and Lyft. The, it's the technology that cities love to hate, but everyone uses. Um, how do you think about the role for ride services like Uber and Lyft in cities as we move forward? Yep. I want to I wanna say that I think of Uber and Lyft have two well, the one that you're talking about, have two kind of modes. They're just like taxis, very convenient mm-hmm. taxis. And sometimes I would think of them as ride sharing if you can meet up with a stranger. Mm-hmm. While you are right that transportation planners in some cities um, love to hate them, I want to say that if I, if I thought of a pyramid of the best way to get around to the worst way of get around, mm-hmm. um, Uber and Lyft, the best way to get around would be by foot, as if you have a short distance in that it's lowest footprint, lowest cost, lowest everything. Um, But going down to the worst, the worst side of that continuum would be driving alone in your personal car. And I'm putting that as the rock bottom, because your personal car, when you drive alone in it, requires storage space. Whereas a Uber and Lyft do not need that storage space. So I think they're a step up of driving yourself around. And it's it's kind of hypocritical when cities say how much they hate those services, but they stay quiet about how most of us travel, which is 70% of our car trips are driven alone. And those cars are parked 95% of the time. So if we think about urban spaces, cars, personal cars are worse than than these types of services. And then if you can share those services as in get into a car with a stranger, now you've really upped the ante and made them better. Right. I want to add a little bit more controversy in that because I can hear some transportation planners yearning, yearning to be in on this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But they're not. 
um, is there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about what we call deadheading. So as an, I'm in the, I'm an empty Uber or an, an empty taxi. I really want to say these are identical, mm-hmm. and I'm looking for someone to pick up. Um, and so there's we think of these as transportation planners want to think of these as zero value miles that are causing congestion and causing emissions. Um, I want to when when we make that statement, we are saying that when I drive my own car, it's always of value. So when I am driving my own car four miles to the grocery store to get the special elephant garlic that's only sold at that one place and I come back, that was okay for me to congest. Um, or if I drop, take my daughter to rock climbing and I come back alone those 12 miles, that's okay. And then when I drive 12 miles alone to pick her up and then I p- drive her back, that's okay. So it's not as if we in our own cars are never making useless trips. But that is kind of the assumption is that all personal trips have value and in taxis and in um, Uber and Lyft, some of those trips have no one being carried around in them. So, so I, uh, so as I say, I want to, I want to put driving around in your own car as worse than you deciding to go by Uber and Lyft. Yeah, and it seems like the possibility that's out there with Uber and Lyft is that it could also have this other value of allowing you to not own a car or not own a second car and that that act itself could have value if it encourages you then to be more multimodal. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you so much for bringing up the other point that I should have brought, should have said. The other really key piece that I learned with Zipcar that is so true is that with your own car, when you say, I want some ice cream, and then you go get in your car and you drive two miles to go buy ice cream, because you're only thinking about the cost of gas, or maybe you're thinking about parking. But when you're taking a shared car, you have to pay full costs. Or when you're taking a taxi or an Uber and Lyft, you're having to pay full costs. So you're thinking to yourself, oh, am I going to pay $7 to $12 to go buy that that <laughs> quart of ice cream? Or am I going to have you know the stale cookies that I have in my drawer and I'll go get ice cream on my way home from work? So that is, I want to say, the number one, in as much as we can get people in cities to not own cars, you're moving people from a cost-benefit trip analysis of the cost of gas to, that's just the marginal cost, to a full cost analysis. And that is phenomenal. When we do that, um, my friend Susan Shaheen, who is a researcher at UC Davis, who does serious research work, will tell you that people drive about 40% fewer miles when they don't own a car anymore. So when they're using car sharing or these other services, they drive way less. And I want to say, I think I would put that up closer to 80%, but my my numbers are anecdotal and her numbers are academic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Horace Dedu talks about this as like the unbundling of the car and, you know, the idea that when you buy the car, you're prepaying for a bundle of trips. And as you say, there's just this marginal cost that's not very much. You know, the car's right there, might as well use it. Um, I've already paid for it. I'm already paying certain fixed costs. And the idea of having to pay as you go, it does make you think, well, I don't know, maybe I could walk or maybe I could take some other mode. I know just anecdotally when I 
take the ferry into San Francisco and I don't have my car with me, I'm willing to try all kinds of things. Let's try a scooter. Let's hop on the Muni. You know, you're just more open also to the the opportunities for multimodal transport. Absolutely. Which leads me to, let, let me throw you my a new hypothesis I have. And mm-hmm. I want you to tell me what you think of my hypothesis because it's completely conjecture right now. <laughs> so, so if we think about um, the rise of what we call micromobility, mm-hmm. and, and into that bucket we put those electric scooters, which are used to go about one mile on average per trip, or all the shared bikes or e-bikes, so electric bikes, mm-hmm. which people will go Oh, up to like 10 and 15 miles in a trip. Um, So I'm really, really excited right now about electric bikes and shared or personally owned. And um, 50% of all the travel we make is less than three miles in distance. And by e-bike, if we can start making those by by electric bike, um, it will transform it, it will transform when I step out my front door, the distances, if I can, if I can get out of my car for all of those short distance trips. Now, when I do the calculus, I would be saying, Oh, 50 to 60 to 70% of my trips. If I'm doing, if I'm now edging up with my e-bike from three miles to four miles to five miles or more, um, I'm not using my car. So if I think about moving a city, let's, let's start small individuals Mm -hmm. and a city and a nation to doing their shorter trips in micromobility and potentially e-bikes, because as I say, hills and hot weather are not an issue for them. Um, I think it would cause people, that's a very small amount of the CO2 emissions in, in our world, which I care a lot about. And so I think about if we move people to these micromobility and it only it's a large percentage of your trips and a small percentage of emissions. I believe that people, it changes the calculus of why do I own a car? So I would be saying, wow, I own a car, but it turns out that I'm only using it for this 30 or 20 or 10% of my trips now. When I, when I have to reevaluate whether I want to own that car, the cost-benefit analysis is dramatically different if I'm not using it for 100% of my trips. And so therefore, at some point when I have to evaluate, I will shed my car and now I'll go into that multimodal mode where I have to really think about my expensive motorized trips. So anyway, I'm thinking about electric bikes as a potential gateway to reevaluating car ownership because you can be satisfied with so many of your trips by electric bike. Yeah, I think that's I I think that's really important and I think one question I have on that is about the form factor. Like, you know, I myself am not comfortable riding a bike in an urban environment, of course, but we'll get into in- infrastructure in a moment. Um, but, you know, I think if you had you know, different form factors with micromobility uh, that are these lightweight electric vehicles that have some of the properties that you're describing about electric bikes, but perhaps appeal to different segments of the population, whether they're little pods or other other form factors. And I, I think we saw this with electric scooters. I mean, just the kick scooter, even though it has a more limited range, the popularity of it was pretty astonishing. And the fact that people felt it was very accessible. 
Um, and so I'm curious, how do you feel about other form factors? Um, yep. I think um, while we're not going to talk about infrastructure right now, <laughs> that is absolutely part and parcel of what it would take is that without question, we have to have the lane allocation and a secure lane allocation where I like to think of the eight to 80 year olds feel okay in that lane. So yeah. that's, that's without question, a requirement to make us have this transition. Um, and to this, the, the vehicle itself, mm-hmm. I am game to, to imagine a whole range of things. I mean, I, I was in the Netherlands. I'm on a, five-day bike trip with my 93-year-old mother. Oh, my goodness. we had her in a bucket bike. So she Mm -hmm. was sitting in the bucket, and (laughs) the bucket up front kind of looked like a, you know, like a wheelbarrow kind of. And my husband was pedaling her around. But one time we were past, we were trying to catch up to this woman who was like 85 on a bike in front of us. And I was thinking, wow, is she on? Like, I was thinking that she was riding. And she was riding, but it was an electric bike. And so I was thinking if my mother had been growing up and aging in the Netherlands, she would still be out on her electric bike um, going. But, you know, you can have long tails and you can have the bucket bikes. And then to the pods, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to entertain the pods as long as we start thinking about their, the space they occupy. Because a single occupancy car car takes up a eight, or ten, eight to ten square meters to transport your body. And that is what, that's the other part of the bane of cars, is that they just, to move your one body, you're taking up this inordinate amount of space. So I, I look at space efficiency of the vehicle is a critical piece of this. So sure, you can have an enclosed bike shape, mm-hmm. um, but once you're getting it to be the same size as a golf cart or larger I, I want to say those things have some interesting attributes, but they aren't what I'm talking about in terms of because we in dense urban areas, we really, really need to make efficient use of space. And those larger vehicles do not. So they, they can exist, but I would put them in the other lanes. They would go in with all the regular cars. Um, you want to have small, lightweight, I'd say lightweight, small footprint vehicles moving together and, and relatively low speed. Well, let's let's talk about the infrastructure now since you've raised it, um, because, you know, I, I sometimes think about pods and I think, well, OK, sometimes there's two people or there's three of us going to dinner or yep. something like that. And, you know, be nice to have something lightweight that is not an SUV and, you know, some big car. And also, I'm not willing to ride in a pod if I'm in the car lane because I'll get crushed in an accident with (laughs) a big SUV. So, you know, could we just take more space? I mean, I kind of like this mindset of abundance where it's like, well, why should we be limited to one bike lane? Why can't we have other bike mobility lanes? (laughs) Well, so let's let's discuss that. That's the beauty of a multimodal world Mm -hmm. is that when you go to dinner with your spouse and child or two children, you're going to take a car, take a car. Mm -hmm. There's three or four of you take a car or you're going to go to two adults will go on their two bikes and their bikes will have, if it's a young child, will have an attachment for a young child. And if it's an older child, that older child will ride like they do themselves all the time. So it's, 
in a multimodal world, unlike today, I would say my old today, I had to use my SUV, whether or not I had three children with me, whether or not I was going downtown, I had to use that blasted big giant object because that's what I had. And that's what I owned and it was expensive. In the multimodal world, every single time I walk out the door, I say, what's the weather? What's the time of day? How do I feel? How much money do I have? How old am I? Who am I carrying? And I take the, I right size the vehicle to the trip. Um, as I think about this, I just want to do one more piece on the, the network of low speed, lightweight, small footprint vehicles that would accommodate our, all of our short trips. Um, I was just looking at this data. About a third of the people who live in the U.S. don't have driver's licenses. Hmm. And so right now, those people are not well served by our car dominant and for many people, car only way of getting around. And so if we were to put together this alternate infrastructure, and I want to say not just cities, everywhere, it would mean that your kid can get himself to school and back and get himself to sports and back, get himself to, you know, play dates and back without you as a parent having to slept them, organize, do all that stuff. Or, or older people or people who've lost their licenses for various reasons, or yourself who feels like you want to run to the store without having to get into this blasted piece of metal and to get some exercise. Right now, we don't offer that up. And there's a third of Americans who I think would be well served by this option. I think that's right. And I think, you know, when you combine that, if you can have micromobility vehicles that can serve that purpose, and also, as you point out, for the times when, you know, maybe it's a longer trip or a car is necessary to have Uber or Lyft or, you know, the kind of on-demand car services, that increase in mobility is really life-changing for a lot of people. I think, you know, people kind of discount the idea of a ride service or, or something that can serve people who today just aren't able to drive cars. Um, and I really feel like having mobility for everyone when they need it in the way that makes sense for them, um, you know, is really worth something. Um, I know we, we focus a lot on traffic and vehicle miles traveled and all these things, but the mobility piece of it, it, it really is freedom for people who aren't able to drive today. I'd like to think of transportation as our gateway to opportunity and when we have a car-only gateway to opportunity, it really excludes this huge number of people. And it's the difference between whether you have education or not, access to healthcare or not, access to friends or not, access to food or not. And it, this idea of um, mobility for all and access for all is a really core piece. And I want to say that we... we you know, when we started 100 years ago, we really did have good intentions. And we really, um, I, I, I can't fault my, my predecessors. And right now, we're, we're in this state of real car blindness, um, blindness to all of its ills. I have this anecdote that I was walking down the street here in Cambridge. And I was walking on the sidewalk. And it's a dense 
it's a dense urban area. It's residential here. And um, a person was walking towards me who I want to say was mentally disturbed. And they were shouting and screaming about a bicycle that had just passed them on the sidewalk. And they were screaming, these damn bicycles on the sidewalks, you know, I can't believe it. And he's shouting. And then he crosses the crosswalk towards me. And parked across the crosswalk was an (laughs) SUV that was parked in the crosswalk, you know, doing whatever business it was doing. And he just walked right around that and kept on walking. And I thought, this is the reality today, that people want to blame, people blame so much. Let's talk about, go back to the Uber and Lyft. And is their pick up and drop off and double parking the bane of our lives? Are they causing congestion? Are they causing people to not take transit anymore? I want to say when, when people say those things, they are forgetting that people in their own cars are double parked constantly. You know, the freight, the delivery trucks are double parking constantly. Cars are parked illegally all the time. Cars are causing car accidents and deaths all the time. And it's not, and that we just, we, we're, we've given a pass to everything to do with cars. And it's all the newcomers that are causing safety, congestion, bad behavior, double parking problems. It's- yeah, I think the, um, you know, the, the way that, that cities have focused on trying to regulate Uber and Lyft without paying any attention to, you know, personally owned vehicles. And, you know, they, they are shocked by these studies that show, oh, my God, 13% of traffic is Uber and Lyft. It's like, all right, well, let's do the math here. What about the rest of the percentage? Exactly. I was traffic? just talking to someone about that article. And she said, oh, you mean that study where Uber and Lyft said they were they caused congestion? I said, yeah, the study that showed in these cities they were 2 to 12% of the traffic? Yes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, what about the rest? And, you know, and then you sort of get this hand waving about, well, we can't really regulate them. It's, you know, it's easier to to regulate these services. Um, but, you know, I really appreciate your point. You, ha- you have these shared mobility principles you've put out there about fair user fees across all modes. And, you know, you mentioned micromobility and how beneficial it could be for cities and how it can reduce traffic. And yet we're seeing all of these uh, fees and caps and, and regulations on scooters uh, without uh, people looking at personally owned vehicles as well. Thank you for saying that. So I didn't have to. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and I look at it and I'm, I'm really trying to be fair like if fees and it's if, if scooters or e-bikes or whatever whatever it is we want to talk about should have fees and fines and cause problems yes let's let's hold them accountable but we have to do it in a level playing field where we're letting cars and personally owned cars not pay their fair share of anything and um so how do we uh, coming back to how we make our choices, we make our choices based on what's convenient and what's economical. And right now we've spent the last hundred plus years making personal cars convenient and economical and everything else is harder. But as I, as, as we started this conversation, I really see that we have got a corner turned and that um, I, I want to add to this, that right now we're having this discussion, but even people who don't, think that they who don't talk about 
transportation are being forced into the discussion. So right now in cities around the world, regular people on the streets who are not transportation nerds are now being forced to confront what do I think about the status quo as, as our city regulators and policymakers having to rethink the status quo. So I look at this moment and this is why um, I, I co-founded this NGO called NUMO, New Urban Mobility Alliance, that there is this worldwide conversation happening in cities right now that we can take that conversation and encourage people to rethink how we've allocated streets and how we've are pricing things and what is the future that we want? How, how can we correct the bad things that have happened and start moving towards more livable cities? Well, absolutely. And as you point out, we have one place that average people are confronted with these transportation choices and, and ideas is on our, our streets and in our cities. And, you know, we started to talk about infrastructure uh, and about car blindness. And one of the things that seems like uh, easy pickings in terms of uh, figuring out how to accommodate different modes on our streets is to remove street parking and to <laughs> easy picking. Cars. I can't believe I can't believe you said easy picking. It's the hardest. It's the the hardest. hardest politically, but the easiest in terms of looking around and saying, huh, where could I get some more space? For protected lanes, for micromobility, for dedicated bus lanes, where am I going to get that space? I mean, it feels like we've got this mismatch where um, everything is set up for people to drive and park, drive and park everywhere you want to go. But yet cities are saying, oh, my goodness, there's all these Uber and Lyft trips. Everybody's getting dropped off now. And if that's the case, if, it, if it's really true that there's so many Uber and Lyft trips and people want to be dropped off, then shouldn't we be uh, f correcting this mismatch of supply and demand and moving the, you know, away from street parking and creating yes, drop-off so zones? Here's the part that is so exciting about the moment we're in yeah. is that the – E-scooters are, so this is data from Portland, Oregon. Um, they were evaluating their pilot, their, their pilot scooters. 50% um, of the people who use those scooters had never been in a bike lane before, never been on a bike or in a bike lane before. So this is a whole new group of users who are not the hipster, environmentalist, whatever you want to call bicyclists. <laughs> so we have this whole brand new constituency who says, yeah, you know what? I do want to have a bike lane. I want to be able to go use this thing around. So I think that's one piece I'm quite excited about. And the other piece is um, more in these dense urban areas because we are now adding more and more options to, to travel. There are more households who don't own cars. And that that group as a constituency, I want to say, hasn't yet been activated, but can and should be activated in that they too are paying taxes in their city. They too live here, yet they are not, they are subsidizing the free parking of everyone, everyone else. And that we need to stop having bundled free parking in new construction. In, so no more parking minimums in construction. Let developers decide whether this place needs a parking spot or not. And no more 
apartments that come with parking. You have to buy your apartment and you have to buy your parking space that you have to evaluate those choices separately. That we, and those of us who are walking and biking to our stores and our homes and our offices are subsidizing all the people who are getting free parking. Um, and we need to stand up for ourselves and say, you know what? I don't want to subsidize that anymore. That's a large piece. And so if we can get that, if those people can stand up more loudly, um, I think we can take away that free or very, very low cost, definitely not market rate on street parking. It's funny. I think Donald Shoup says uh, the parking isn't free. It's just included yep. in the price. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so he is, he's, of course, all of our hero for his beautifully done parking pieces. But I think we are slowly moving, we are slowly getting more and more people who aren't participating in the car economy and should realize that we're subsidizing everyone else. So we need to speak up more. Yeah, it it always seems like street space is a chicken and egg problem, you know, and if you... You know, sure, if you build more protected lanes, then people will use them. But if cities are waiting to see ridership numbers before they build the lanes, then, you know, how do you get them? And so I think you're right. The fact that people are sort of frustrated, they've got this electric scooter, they want to ride it. They know they're not supposed to ride it on the sidewalk. Suddenly that's kind of creating a, a demand that didn't exist before. And the, um, Portland, the Portland survey had a question, where would you prefer to ride? And of course, everyone would prefer to ride in a bike lane. Yeah. <laughs> but if they don't have a bike lane, well, then, uh, then they have to start making some choices. I was reading a tweet by Brent Todarian, who was um, the city planner for the city of Vancouver for eight years. And he had this thing that I, that I read and felt right to me. He said that his biggest regret was that in Vancouver, he would add bike lanes in this very slow fashion, which he said was like pulling off a Band-Aid constantly. <laughs> it's having to make this political fight one by one by one, and that if he'd had to do it over, he would have just done it in a shot. And that's the place where we haven't talked enough yet about climate change, but we need to reduce emissions by 50% over the next 10 years. And I don't see us accomplishing such an astounding goal when we don't make space for these micro mobility lanes all at once that we need to create these networks. So it's not every street, but we need to create just like we have subway networks where I might go into, you know, in and then change. I think of bike network kind of in a similar way that is there a safe and secure bike network where I go a little bit farther out of my way, but I have four blocks in each end that feel more insecure, but the major majority of my trip I'm on a, secure path. So we really need to start redoing our cities all at once with these, I would say, environmental and social goals in mind that it has to be done and we can't do it. We shouldn't be doing it in this piecemeal way. It's just not fast enough and people can't adopt it fast enough. Just one more point on this. Mm -hmm. um, a long time ago, I was in Detroit visiting Ford Credit. This was like 20 years ago. And it's a, it was then a long two-story building that took up an entire block in the middle of a field of grass and parking lot. What was striking to me as I was walking through there was it was clear that there had been some staff person who'd 
gone to some Mediterranean villages that didn't have cars and had taken all these beautiful shots of these quaint villages with no cars anyplace. And, and as we think about our cities, and every time a city goes through the huge fight of removing parking or adding a bus lane or adding, you know, pedestrianizing something, wherever we take out cars, it becomes a better place. It just people this example. It. People, and people love it. Yeah, yeah. And it's example after example after example that that is the truth. When we take them out, people like it better. So while we're talking about controversial uh, political uh, changes, let, let's talk a little bit about road pricing. You know, one of the um, things about Uber and Lyft and and the car culture that we've had is this idea that driving is basically free. And um, many other places in the world have tried uh, what they call congestion pricing. I really hate that word. I don't know why. I like the word road pricing. And then, wait, wait. oh, so let's discuss. Wait, wait, wait. I want to. You're one of the people who causes the challenge, the problem. Um, so I was just. Uh, I'm putting together with Numo and MIT a, a course that will take place next spring on new mobility, and we were just discussing pricing the module, and I would say road pricing should be used when we're thinking about how we pay as a user fee for road infrastructure, which is different than congestion pricing. And my friend, Jeff Tumlin calls it decongestion pricing. Does that make you happier? <laughs> so it's decongestion pricing. I think it's surge pricing if you're in a congested okay. area during peak times and it's okay. road pricing for all the other vehicle miles you travel. Wherever right. you go, right. you pay. Right. It's just so a that's a rate. user fee. That's just a basic user fee. Yeah. 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 And so what I've been um, just tying the topic we talked about before, these politically challenging things, which is one politically challenging thing to re to reallocate street space, another politically challenging thing to have people pay to travel during peak times. Um, I'm a deep believer in pilots right now. And we know, so Jeanette Sadek Khan did a beautiful job of this famously in New York City who, who said, okay, let's close Times Square. Let's close Broadway. But it's just a pilot. Don't worry about it. It's just a pilot. If we don't like it after six months, we can change it. Well, to the point that we know that if you've done a good job, people do like it. It is better. Not everyone, but the majority of people, and maybe the vast majority of people, find it better. So around congestion pricing, um, what's been challenging is that the old-fashioned technology, which is what's been used everywhere, that was done in London and Stockholm and Singapore and Milan was you did a cordon and cameras. So you crossed the line, there were cameras, they took a photo of you and then you would pay either because you had a transponder or you had a license plate or you made a, a match some other way. And I want to say that that was, and that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build that. So in Stockholm, it cost, I think, $350 million to build it. Wow. And in London, in that same ballpark, so the challenge has been, how do you do a congestion pricing pilot when it's going to cost you $300 million to build the infrastructure? And so my pitch is, that was the old-fashioned way. Today, today we have so many ways of doing e-electronic payment. And we also are all carrying cell phones around in our pockets and smartphones all around in our pockets. And I believe that we can do 
cell phone congestion pricing. And my case in point is Uber and Lyft are effectively every mile you travel, I'm, I'm charging you for, right? And I'm doing that 100% on the back of the technology of the driver and me, smartphones. And simply you can think about ways or Google Maps that will say, do you want to travel this path with a toll road or this other way without a toll road? Like, this is 100% possible. And so I would love to see us do some congestion pricing pilots using cell phone apps. And that would cost insignificant amounts of money to, to do these pilots and say, hey, look, let's try congestion pricing using cell phones. We'll turn it on for six months, see how we like it. And if we like it, we will keep it. And during that six months, of course, then you're going to find out all the things that are quirky and um, solve those problems. But I, I think we've, we've finally, we started with technology and circling here with technology. Technology is changing what is possible and the ease and convenience and the cost of doing it. And we can do cell phone-based congestion pricing. And I'm yearning to find a city to pilot that. Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting. And there's there's so much we can do with the technology. Um, and as you point out, the fact that it it just doesn't cost what it used to to try things out is it, such a great point um, for for trying things. Um, so final final thing I wanted to talk about was the impact of all these new technologies on public transit. There's a bit of a conversation in cities where they're very negative about new technologies because after all people are riding the bus less or it has this negative um, view where people yep. are, are unhappy now oh everybody's spoiled because they like on demand with uber and now they don't want to wait for the bus and i kind of feel like that's not quite the right approach but how, how do you think we should be viewing public transit and and how it interfaces with all these new technologies? Um, a couple of things. So first off, if, if you remember that we want to move from a car-only world to a multimodal world because it gives us resilience, less cost, better CO2 emissions, better equity, better access, all of those things – once you don't own a car, you will travel by all the modes, including public transit more, as we discussed, because of pricing, because of convenience, because it's the right trip for the right thing. So I feel as in as much as as any of these new modes are adding to the number of people who aren't owning cars, it can only be good for public transit. The second piece is public transit is let's define it, I would say, a dedicated route with a large size vehicle carrying lots of people, maybe underground or on top, in dense urban areas during peak times is a requirement if you are a dense urban area. That there is, we cannot, we, there is no substitution for the, the flow of people required to cover those distances. So public transit will always have a place in these dense urban areas. But then we can talk about suburbs or cities that are so low density that they're just like one big suburb. Public transit that is on half hour or hourly intervals to distant places, to places that 
aren't really where you want to start or where you want to end up are not great. Like that is not a high quality thing. And I don't feel like, why should I, why should we, why should we be trying to protect that service? Instead, we should be saying, how do we get people to places they need to go? How do we provide access? And, and public, public transit. I also think, what is the definition of public transit? Um, So we're seeing many public transit agencies that are now partnering to provide first and last mile services or low density services that are being provided by Uber or Lyft or by the first and last mile by electric scooters or by, I feel like, or, and there's micro transit that has come up or the shared transport. I feel that if we get right pricing to say, I'm going to charge you for space, the space you occupy during during peak times, including your emissions, people will sort themselves out much better than they do today. So today, let's go to New York City. Um, there's a, a, a controversy, an argument over whether people are all taking, not all people, whether many people are taking Uber and Lyfts during peak times instead of riding the subway. I want to say, if I can go where I want to go in Uber and Lyft for seven bucks, and I have seven bucks to spend instead of two fifty, and it's taking me less time, why would I not do that? Right. But if you're telling me, if you're telling, if the city were to say, you know what, during peak times we don't want you to take up ten square feet, we want you to go onto a subway where you take up a fraction of a square of a square mm-hmm. square yard, then charge me congestion pricing on the streets. And then that will make me go into the subway or I'll pay for my luxury of driving myself in my own car or my own taxi. But right now we are not, we are not putting any premium on any vehicle, taxi, personally owned car, Uber and Lyft, which is just like taxi, to drive during peak times. So I, I, and I, I also feel like when we talk about the decline in public transit, and maybe we said this at the beginning, I've had too many conversations today. Um, we never we never ever look at the people who are driving themselves who do have that option. Like they too are not taking transit. And so we, we are looking at the people in Uber and Lyfts as if they're the only people who aren't taking transit during any time of day. And I'd say, what about all the people who drive their own cars? They also are not taking transit. So again, I feel like it's right pricing right pricing for parking your car, right pricing for driving during congested times. And and it could at some points be right pricing for pickup and drop off at curbs, congested curbs during congested times. Um, that we are really sending, cities are sending us all the wrong signals that right now they seem to express ambivalence. Robin, it's rush hour. You can ride your bike or you can take the subway. You can take your car. I don't care because they aren't sending me any signal to tell me otherwise. Um, I think that's right. And I think the other piece of it, in addition to the the pricing, is the experience. I mean, if you want people to ride the bus, you know, you have to prioritize the bus, you know, and make yep. it fast and comfortable and a great experience. Instead of saying... Instead of sort of trying to put down the other options, oh, well, we need to make uber less convenient really i think you should be making the bus more convenient 
And going back to the shared mobility principles, number three, making efficient cities, we all should be making efficient use of lanes, curbs, and vehicles. Mm -hmm. During peak times, cities in their own logic should be having bus rights of way because they need to push more people through. Right. And they should have, you know, high occupancy vehicle three plus lanes, as in when you take a taxi, which is just yourself and one driver, is the same thing as driving yourself. I don't think you should get any special dispensation for that. But if you're three plus, as in a driver and two people or three people carpooling, yeah, you know what? I want to give you some priority over the 70% of people who are driving during peak times by themselves. Right. That So... We absolutely, and one of the things I love about congestion pricing while we're on this topic is that what you do with congestion pricing revenues, you support more efficient means of travel, which means what would I do with congestion pricing money? I would help finance and improve the quality of public transit services and I would say the space-efficient services, bike lanes. Like mm -hmm. I want you to travel those better ways and I want to make it a better quality service. And that's what I'm going to do with the congestion pricing money for people who want to travel in luxury while the rest of us while others are having to fight for scraps of space that we it's so anyway it, it makes sense to me that's what i would do with congestion pricing money is we we should improve the quality of those things a long time ago someone said and i love this that we invest in highways and subsidize public transit <laughs> <laughs> so true <laughs> So we could be rethinking that equation. You know, what are, if cities, if cities do state that their goals are addressing climate change, addressing equ equality and access, and, and trying to make um, smooth flow of traffic for the economy to work, yet they do not back up those, those requirements. They don't back up those goals. Instead, they let the status quo persist. And I was in another meeting and, and a person just said it very eloquently that inaction is an action. When cities let the status quo persist, they are actively saying we are not going after those stated goals of ours. That's right. It's all a choice one way or the other. Yeah. 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 So no choice is a choice. Exactly. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a really great discussion. I appreciate you taking the time. It was a pleasure and delight. I love talking about this stuff. Thanks again to Robin for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes, please check out our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.